0: One under a pew chair near you and uh, turn to Genesis chapter 6. If you're not a regular at Garden Chapel, this is a continuing series in the book of Genesis. Uh, this morning, as you can see on the screen behind me, I've called this blueprint for salvation. This is not how you get saved spiritually, save from your sins and make sure that you're right with God and you're going to heaven. But this is salvation from destruction, but it is a picture of what Christ has done for us, not the flood. That's a picture of death and destruction and wiping things out. The picture of salvation is the ark that God prepared for those that would trust him and be obedient to him, that they would be saved from the destruction, from the flood that was about to come. We'll see as we bring come to the end of the sermon that God does indeed use this as a picture of what Christ would do for us. Unfortunately, we live in a land where most people, and uh, that's sad to say, but most people don't believe the story of Noah. By the way, I would call this God's ark and God's flood. We usually say Noah's flood or Noah's ark. That's not bad. That way we know which flood and which ark we're talking about. But the truth of the matter is, Noah is simply someone who was willing to be obedient to God, and do what God asked him to do. That's why God already looked and saw that he was already a righteous person, and God acknowledged that, and God was favorable toward him. And then he said, okay, Noah, you have been living right before me, and now I have a huge job for you to do that uh, probably, and I doubt if he told Noah this, but Noah found out soon, most of the world will just make of you. They will ridicule you. They will put you down because of it. Here's what I want to tell you before we get started. If you want to be used by God in some big way, be obedient today, every day, every decision, everything you do. Because guess what? That's exactly what Noah did. He was already obedient, already a righteous person. And then God said, okay, I see your track record, now I have something bigger for you to do. And that's Genesis. We also live in a a country where even our tax dollars go to the Smithsonian Institute. By the way, it's a fun place to go, but be careful. Because you're not going to get a biblical point of view. You're not going to get the truth. You're going to get a secular, humanistic point of view. They wrote an article, uh, and it was probably written in response to the Noah movie, but uh, this was earlier this year and they they just said you know what if you dig deep in almost all religions you're going to find a flood story somewhere where a big boat was built an ark was built and it saved some people etc etc christians believe that jews believe that muslims believe that and even other uh, pagan religions they have a flood account of some sort or a flood myth of some sort but they said here's the science Here's the science, and I'm just going to read. I'm not going to read, but I'll, I'll tell you. Similar flood tales are told by, in many cultures, but there never was a global deluge. That's science. It's been proven there never was a global deluge or a global flood. That's what they say. By the way, your tax dollars are sponsoring that, just in case you wanted to know. The point is, they are going to take a very different point of view than what God says. Because if you acknowledge that what God says is correct, you now have to come to the conclusion, I might have to answer to God. The truth of the matter is, when you think about the account of creation, the account of Jonah being swallowed by a large fish, and the account of an ark being built, to save eight people and the animals that breathe from being drowned and destroyed are those things that the world points out and said, what a bunch of silly Christians. What a bunch of fools. They believe these myths. And that's in essence what they're saying. It says, they go on to say, there was absolutely not enough water to cover the earth. Little do they know of what the Bible talks about. They have never even considered the claims and the reality of what you can see even today. And here's their take on Noah's flood. And I'm going to, I'm going to actually quote, it may well be that Noah's flood is a recollection of a large wave that drowned for a few weeks, a particular piece of land. And on that piece of land, there was nowhere dry to live. That's their version of Noah's ark, Noah's flood. Now, I've got to tell you, that's pretty silly. Even all the myths from other cultures say it was way bigger than that. Most of them actually grow global. But they say there's never any possibility because there wouldn't be enough water to cover the earth. They need to get their science right. Because God has already given us, and it's actually proof. In fact, is they're often asked, well, then how did seashells get on the top of mountains? And they say, well, that was plate tectonics, and and the the mountains rose up. That's true. But you have to have a mechanism for that happening. And there's only one catastrophe in all of history that's big enough for that to happen. It's called the global flood, a time when God chose to destroy Two lessons this morning that are overall. God will destroy those that live in unrepentant sin. That's the first part of this chapter. And in that destruction, he will provide a way of escape, a way of salvation, as it were, for those that are willing to believe him and to trust him and to be obedient to him. And that is the story. That is the account of Noah. So, if you would follow with me, Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 14, it says there, and it's a command to uh, Noah, and it is absolutely a personal command Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cupid from the top and set a door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. God gave him a command, and it's a very specific command. He didn't say, Noah, just go do something and uh, hope that it saves you. He said, no, here's how you do it. Uh, I want to make something clear. Even totally secular people have done the calculations. The ark will float. The ark will uh, serve to house all the animals and, and the people in it. It will last. It's strong enough. All of those things are true. But as with God's work, there is always an element that's above natural. It's supernatural. Supernatural. Even the animals, when they came in, and you've heard stories and, you know, probably Sunday school stories, Noah went out and gathered the animals. Not absolutely not true at all. The animals actually came there. The flood is not something that normally happens. And a boat this big that's made out of wood will not normally actually work. And by the way, it was not a boat. It was a barge, but we'll get into that in a minute. But it won't work. God supernaturally attended all of this. Just like our salvation is not, well, man's going to do his best, his natural best. No, our salvation through Jesus Christ is absolutely supernatural. The ark is something that is above just plain natural. It's supernatural. God is the one that gave the command. He is the designer. He is the engineer. He knew what would work, and told Noah what to do. There's some interesting things. The word ark is only used two different contexts in the Old Testament. One is here for the ark that God commanded Noah to build, and the other one is in a favorite Bible story of every young child, and it might even be your, one of your favorite Bible stories as an adult. It's interesting, because both of them have to do with water, Both of them have to do with saving life. Both of them have to do with something that floats with a covering over it. Did you guess what the other place is? King James Version got it right. It said, go down to the Nile River and build a little ark for Moses and put him among the reeds. That's what it actually says. The only other place that this is used. So we know that it's something that has to float. I will also tell you that it's never used for what we would call a boat or a ship or a canoe or any of those kinds of things. Those are there are other plenty of other words in the Old Testament and the New Testament that have with sailing vessels of whatever sort. But this is a barge. It was not made to travel. It was meant to save life. Just like a basket made out of reeds, also called an ark, wasn't saleable. It was to save life. And so you see that side. But when you get to the Greek New Testament of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, and you get to the New Testament, which was also written in Greek, you will find that the ark, the word that is used to translate the Hebrew word for ark is used of something else also. It's used to translate all of these things, but it's also used to translate the Ark of the Covenant. If you're not familiar what the Ark of the Covenant is, it is that rectangular box that was made by the children of Israel to put in the Holy of Holies to contain the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and a jar of manna. And above it was the mercy seat above it were the cherubim if cherubim if you remember and god dwelt above there but it was a box a rectangular box kind of gives us the shape of this whole thing there are those that say nobody really knows what the ark looked like you know there aren't specific details wrong 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 do we have all the details do we know exactly how it looked the answer is no we do not in fact is I looked considerable, because I'm not an artist, or I would have tried to draw an ark that looks like the Bible. But this one up here, if you can see it, and it's kind of probably hard to see, is probably the closest thing I could find on the internet that looks like and fits the biblical description. It was box-like, and at the top, and I'll get to this, it had um, a place for ventilation and light to come in, and it also has a door in the side. If you've ever looked at most arc drawings, re- rendered drawings, you will see they have a ramp going up the end of the boat. It's very clear it was in the side of the boat, not the end of the boat. Um, those types of things. So it is something that God commanded. And the, the great thing is, and what sets Noah apart from most others, is that he was willing to be obedient. And it says it was made out of gopher wood. Now, there are a lot of things we do not know. So if I think I know something, and the Bible is very clear, I'll make that clear. Nobody knows what gopher wood is. I've never seen any, and it's not a gopher that's petrified. It just isn't that. Here's what they actually did. Because the word is such that nobody knew exactly what it meant. And so they just took the Hebrew word and transliterated it, which simply means they took the Hebrew word and made it into an English word. It comes out gopher. Nobody knows exactly what it was. Most likely, could have been any kind of wood, but most likely it was made out of cypress, which is a wood that is strong and very resistant to decay and those types of things and and rot and, and that. A little bit like cedar wood would be today for us. That's the best possibility I can come up with. I don't know, but it would have absolutely been durable enough to do this. And then it says you shall make the ark with rooms in it. Now it's interesting, and I'll get to this in a moment, but the, this is bigger than the largest wooden ship that was ever built that is seaworthy. In other words, could handle going out on the sea. The ark is considerably bigger. I have a graphic I'll show you in a few minutes. But here's the what makes a huge difference. Because normally a ship has an empty space so you can fill it with cargo. Well, the ark was made with rooms in it. If you make rooms, you have interior bracing. I worked construction for 13 years before I was a pastor. And I know that if you just set up the shell of the outside of a building and the wind comes along, it's pretty shaky. Nobody is going to tell me different because it's pretty shaky. We used to brace them like crazy just in case we got a wind. But when you start putting the interior walls in, it braces it all together. And then to put the drywall on, it really makes it stiff and solid. Well, here's what it comes down to. The ark was cubed off with rooms on the inside, which would have been a cross and would have counteracted the pressure of all the water coming in, and it would have been a very strong system. And it would have been exactly, as God said, it was able to be on the water for approximately a year. But not only that, you say, hold it a second. If they're going to build this ark, and yeah, there's the supernatural, but how in the world would have they built this? Let's face it, this is back in prehistoric times. By the way, that's what you're told. Uh, that's not true. They wouldn't have had the equipment needed. How would have they lifted the planks, and how would have they cut them, and how would... Oh, if you've been here at Garden Chapel, and you've been reading your Bible, you will remember that Genesis chapter 4 says the whole line of Cain already were forgers of iron and bronze, they made implements, tools of iron and bronze. And so the things that we would have today, they might not have been as fancy as we have. I doubt if they had electric planers and a few other things and chainsaws. But they had all of these other things that absolutely made it possible. And for thousands of years, people did. I have a house that still has hand hewed timbers in the basement. You know, there was no chainsaw used on those. They were hacked out with a, a, an ad, ads, or an axe or whatever they used those days. And that's, Noah could have very easily done that. You say, but hold it a second. If they didn't have all this fancy equipment to make sure everything's perfect and fits together, it would have leaked. It would have sunk. Well, let's keep reading. Because it says that they were to cover it inside and out with pitch. Disclosure, we don't know exactly what pitch is. All I know is I've worked with wood enough in my life. And if you use any kind of a uh, wood that we could be talking about here, you could take tree sap and that stuff gets really hard. Get it on your hand sometime when you're working. Try getting it back off. It's a pain in the neck to get off. Let it go for a while. It gets hard. It's impervious to water. Or it could have been asphalt. You know what asphalt is? When you walk out today, if, this, if it doesn't snow by then, you'll see a whole big patch of asphalt out there covering a whole lot of stones. And if you see the cracks that are filled, that's pure asphalt that was simply heated up and poured down and gets hard when it goes back to normal temperature. You know what? Whatever it was, we don't know. But the truth of the matter is, it was something that was able to cover it on the outside, cover it on the inside, which means it must have gotten hard to some extent because you could put animals and live inside without getting all smeared up by it. You know, it was a possibility. And as you know, even if water got in, wood swells up and it actually makes it tight. And that's how uh, vessels that are made out of wood actually don't leak because when water comes in, it swells them up and swells the cracks shut. truth of the matter is, all of these things are known by anyone that wants to take the time to check them out, that it'll work even naturally, without God superintending, will work. We also know that it had a very specific size. A cupid from the beginning was always somewhere around this, from an elbow to the tip of the longest finger of a man. Now, let's face it, if we all checked that out, we'd, have a, we'd be across the board here. I just put a few up here that I found that these are, we're going to just simply take the common one that is normally used. It kind of fits in the middle. It's close enough for anything we need to know. So we don't know exactly what it was, but we know within an inch or two of what it was. So here's what it comes down to. The ark was 450 feet long. It was 75 feet, um, I mean, uh, All of a sudden, I lost my, my train of thought. Sorry about that, folks. I, I want to make sure I don't tell you the wrong thing. And now I can't even find it. Okay. 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Thank you. Sorry, I just lost my notes and I was, should have been watching them. But anyway, thank you for whoever helped me out, but that was correct. It was 450 long, 75 wide, 45 high. That's what it was. And that's what it comes out to. And uh, those that are engineers of nautical vessels would say that is a perfect uh, way to put it together. It will work. In fact, is they've done experiments where it would almost have to flip on its side before it would actually go under and drown. It would bounce back up just because of the way it was made. Remember, it is a barge, a box-like Vessel, not a ship. Anybody that tells you different hasn't read the scripture. In fact, is I told you I would come up with a graphic. If you look, the Queen Mary is about 1150 feet long. That's huge. The Titanic, which we know what happened to that was about uh, 850. The Wyoming, and that is the largest wooden ship that actually worked. In fact, as I have a picture of it, that's an actual picture of it. it had six masts on it, and it actually worked and, and was worked well. And then the Santa Maria, one of the ships that Columbus used, you see how small it is compared to the rest. The Ark fits is actually bigger than the Wyoming. The Wyoming, if you measure it from the very end to the very end, almost is as long as the Ark, except that when you look at it, they measure the whole way. To the very end. I actually cut it off to get the picture in the whole way to the other end. But the deck itself is way smaller than the ark. So truth of the matter is, it is bigger than any wooden ship that was actually seaworthy. But again, it was not a ship. It was a barge. That is its shape. Very different. It was not made for travel or for commerce. It was made to save life and simply to float. There was no rudder, no steering wheel, there, nothing, no, no locomotion, no sails, no any of those things. It was made simply to float above the water and keep people and animals from drowning and being destroyed. So, continuing on, God said, I'm going to bring judgment. And even during that time of judgment, he made it possible for them to actually see out. It says that it is to be built up to within a cupid of the top. And that's a window. Two possible ways to look at this because nobody can figure out because it's not clear enough. It's either at the sides, the 45 feet up at the top would have been about a foot and a half of opening. And it would have went around it for ventilation and light. Or it would be like you see sometimes, it would have had a roof and then had a ridge vent up there, you know, to let light and ventilation in. The, the roof of this building has a ridge vent. It allows the air to go out, keeps the condensation down and those kinds of things, but doesn't allow water to come in and ruin our ceiling. And you don't get wet when it rains when you come to church. We don't know exactly how. All we know is that God calls it a window. And when you get to Genesis chapter 8, it says Noah opened the window. So you had to be able to open and shut it. And there was a door. And remember, the latch is on the outside of the door because God closed it. So it had to be on the outside. Very interesting because it's all controlled by God. his, His ark, his flood, and he is the one in control. We need to remember that. And then there's the, as I said, the door is on the side of it, not on the end, and it has three decks. Again, putting those three decks in there would make it very strong because it would be pushing out and counteracting the force of the water, which would be indeed very, very considerable. But God's judgment, verse 17, Behold, I, even I am, bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is on the earth shall perish. Notice God did not stutter, and he didn't fail to make himself clear. All means, A-L-L, all. In case you didn't get that, he says everything. And he says he's going to destroy, and if you don't get that, he says perish. You can't get it very much clearer than that. God says everything that's not in the ark, that breathes air, air, is going to die. And who's doing it? Not the devil, not the people. It's God. God judges sin. He doesn't always do it by a flood, and he doesn't always wipe everybody but four people and the animals out. I mean, eight people and the animals out. Sorry. Uh, But he absolutely judges sin. He is a God who will be very generous, very merciful, very gracious, very loving. But there is a time he says, enough is enough. I now will bring judgment. But it doesn't stop there. We continue on to verse 18. In verse 18, he makes a promise. He promises a future covenant. The covenant is not here yet, but I will, future tense, establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. When the flood is over and they're back on dry land, God indeed establishes a covenant. You know the sign of that covenant. It's what? A rainbow, that's right. It is a covenant that he is going to establish with them. We'll talk about that when we get to that part of of Genesis. But for now, he's promising them, you be obedient to me, and here's going to be the results. You cannot make a covenant with somebody that's dead. So before they go into this ark, they are already promised by God that they're going to come out. Because it could be like a great big coffin, right? You know, it could be. But God promises, no, there's light at the end of the tunnel. In this case, light at the end of the flood. Now, there is a responsibility, and this is the biggest part of what I want to cover today in the next uh, 16 minutes. It says in verse 19, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Notice where I said before, they will come to you. Uh, Let me jump ahead on that one and just go in there. You know what? Canadian geese can fly from wherever it is they go in Canada to way south of us, and they do it every year, and nobody gave them a GPS. Monarch butterflies do the same thing. Uh, Big herds of animals in Africa migrate every year. We know all of these things. If your dog gets lost a few miles from home, he'll probably find his way home. I don't know how animals do that, but they have something God built in. And so, if God can do that on a regular basis for something that's supernatural, God is the one that did it. All Noah had to do is do what God asked him to do, and God did the rest. By the way, that's always true of living by faith. God doesn't ask us to do everything but what he asks us to do, he expects us to obey and to do, and he brings about the desired result uh, through the whole thing. So, one more thing. The water saved how many people? How many people did the water save? How many people did the water save? Zero! Okay, that was a trick question. I knew somebody would get it wrong, so don't kick yourself. It's tricky how many people did the ark save? Eight. Ah, see, that. remember that. My last point is personal application. We're going to talk about baptism because that's what God does. He takes his story and uses it to explain baptism. I just want to get that straight. I might trick you again, ask you that. This time you can yell out with confidence, okay? So how many people did the water save? None. Zero. Zip. Nada. Okay, how many did the ark save? Eight and all the animals. Okay, you you are really good students. Okay. So anyway, but he says, here's what you need to do. There are those that say there are there is no way you can get enough animals on the ark. It just isn't physically possible. They're dead wrong. And here's why. And I have it on the screen. It says that they were to take of two of every kind. That is a key word. I spent a whole sermon or half a sermon dealing with that. I'm not going to do that again. I'll give you the end result, and that's simply this. Kind is as approximately what we would call a species today if you study biology. Okay, here's the main things you need to understand. They tend to look alike. They can be identified visually. They can reproduce and interbreed successfully In other words, a species is a small gene pool protected by a reproductive barrier. And we'll call this the Noah test, if you remember from before. Here's what it comes down to. How many dogs did God have to take on the ark? There are, I think, registered breeds like 256. They might have upped that a little bit. Did he have to take 256 pairs of dogs? The answer is no, he did not. All you do is take two dogs, two cattle. He only took eight people and look around you just in this room. I don't look like Andre, and I obviously don't look like some of the rest of you. I mean, you just go around and look. Some of us are tall, some are short, some are all colors, you name it. They all came from eight people. The genetic variability is there and built in, and it's there. The potential is there. It's just interbreeding and time and all those kinds of things. Not evolution. It's simply what is already there. And, and uh, in the case of animals, what you breed in or breed out. Um, same with plants. You can do the same thing with plants. So there are considerably less animals needed than if you looked around and said, okay, if we need two of every one, man, that is just way too small but it just uh, is not possible. I'm not going to go into it. By the way, estimates of whether it's dinosaurs or animals we know today, the average size animal... See, we get impressed by big animals, but the average size animal is more like the size of a domestic sheep. That's about the proximate, including dinosaurs. And actually, people that don't believe the Bible have come up with that, that most dinosaurs were way smaller than the big ones that get all the attention. Uh, same with today. So they would have considerably less amount of animals. There are wide estimates of exactly what it would be. I'm not going to get into that because it's not important. Here's what's important. They would all fit no matter what your estimate is. I talked to a friend of mine who is, a Uh, one of my tractor pull buddies, and he works for Norfolk Southern. And I said, how many boxcars in a regular train, you know, that you'd see going down the tracks? He said, usually about 140. If you figured out the cubic volume of the arc, you would come up to the approximate volume of 522 boxcars. start figuring that out. That means it would take just about 440 car trains, and you could take them and stack them inside the ark. That's huge. They estimate that the animals, including insects, uh, because remember, there's a couple million insects. By the way, I still have a question to ask Noah: Why did he take skitas on the ark? I just want to know that one. I'm joking, but uh, the truth of the matter is, <laughs> it's it's one of those things. So anyway, if if you have all of that and uh, the normal size is about a sheep, you can put a whole lot of things on the ark that you couldn't do. In fact, is they figured that it would take about 50 of those railroad cars to put all the animals in, and maybe another uh, 12 cars to put all the insects in. That leaves you 450, the space of 450 box cars to put water, food, living space, exercise room, whatever else it is you know, whatever else you would have put in there. The animals wouldn't take up that much space. That would take some. Did How did the animals act? I mean, were they mean and ferocious and all those? There were some differences, I believe, and we'll talk about that later. But at the same time, God could have put them in a type of hibernation, but I can tell you they weren't comatose for a year because they took food for the people and the animals. So they were Eating and all those other things. And you go, hold it a second. Eight people to take care of all these animals, wouldn't it reek in there? Let's be honest with this, it's very practical. You know what? Until not too many hundreds of years ago, do you realize that most farmers lived in the second story above their cattle? Yeah. We like our houses relatively odor free, unless it's one of them there what do you call the Yankee candle things that my wife uses, you know? We like them That is not the history of civilization. Many times, people live right above their animals. The ark would have been a good illustration of that, uh, even though it doesn't tell us exactly. Maybe railroad cars don't help you much. Think about it this way. This building that we are in, not this auditorium, but the whole building is 120 feet long. Guess what? That would take about what would be about almost four times longer than this building. And this is 60 feet across, so it would be another uh, 15 feet wider. And then it would be three levels. Each level there was 15 feet high. Uh, I already measured it standing here. It's 17 feet to the peak from where I'm standing. So it would be that times two more. Plus two more, I'm sorry. Plus two more. Huge when you think about it. And remember, this isn't a zoo where you're trying to show the animals off in a natural surrounding. This is life preservation, not presentation. So keep all of those things in mind when you put your your brain in gear to try to do this. And when you hear people saying, it couldn't happen. It's not going to work this way. You really can. Uh, This all does work. But it says in verse 21, and I'm going to continue on or I'll run out of time. It says, as for you, take uh, for yourself some of all food, which is edible, and gather it to yourselves, and it shall be food for you and for them. Now notice, it is food for them. At this point, my opinion, and I want to make that clear, my opinion is at this point, all animals were still vegetarian. If you don't believe me, go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, which makes it clear. He gave all the vegetation for the animals and Adam and Eve to eat. There is no change that I see at this point yet in history. After that, uh, when they come out of the ark, God makes it clear in chapter 9, verse 3, that he had also given the animals for Adam and Eve to eat. And so animals now became a source of food one of the things I would point out is there is no pre- preparation for animals to be used for slaughter to feed lions or tigers or Adam, uh, no stake for Adam on the ark. It just It's not there. Could have been, I guess you could jam that in if you wanted to, but I'm just going to say, if God wants to know that, he would have told us, and he didn't. So I'm going to say, life continued on as it had from the beginning at this point. That's my opinion. You can differ if you'd like. But verse 22 of Genesis 6 says, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. It just simply ends with the underscoring of Noah being a righteous, obedient, faithful person. We know that from the New Testament. He's a righteous man. He's a preacher of righteousness, and he lived by faith. This really stamps that home. He did what God commanded him, and so he did. Again, it's one of those things where God goes, oh, by the way, if he didn't get that he did all God commanded him, so he did. He kind of puts a stamp on the end of that and says, no, he did it. Get it in your head. That's what he did. Now, one last thing that you might ask is it possible for Noah in 120 years with just him and his sons to build this ark? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Simply says Noah was the righteous one, and it doesn't tell us who else helped him. It doesn't even say his sons helped him. We just simply don't know. Truth of the matter is, he might have hired those people that were making fun of him and ridiculing him. By the way, you'll see the passage where I believe you can get that from, because the next passage we're going to look at talks about suffering, and it talks about Noah, right smack in the middle, uses him and the ark and the flood as an example of that. Simply this, he may have hired workers. We simply do not know, but they had the capability of doing what was what was done. What Noah do? He simply was obedient and did what God wanted. What a great example. I I started this this portion of Genesis by dare to be a Noah. This just underscores, underlines, and stamps home that Noah was that kind of person that lived by faith in spite of what happened around him. I have about five minutes left. That was... uh, I'd like you to turn, and you don't have to turn. I'm just going to look at this. 1 Peter chapter 3, the the last verses are not the easiest verses to interpret. I'm going to tell you that right now. I spent more time on this than I did all the rest of it put together just to make sure I had it in my head. And now I'm going to use four minutes to, to do that. But here's what it comes down to. In this passage, and I took out some of it to make it fit the slide, but in the days, days of Noah, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, the water saved how many people? None. The ark saved how many? Eight. Okay. You got it. Okay. Now, so let's look at that. That's what it's talking about. These people were brought through safely, through the water in the ark. That's what salvation is. It's not to everybody. That's universalism. It is to those that were obedient. and were willing to do what God asked them to do. And they were brought safely through. And then he goes on and says, corresponding to that, which means this was something that was a type. It was something to get our attention, give us an illustration of something that would have a fulfillment. The fulfillment in this case is water baptism. Remember, the water in this case covered everyone (laughs) that was going to be destroyed. They all drowned. They were all destroyed. And so when it comes to this, this is not about how to do baptism. This is a motive behind and a reason for baptism. What's the mindset? Why should I be baptized? That's what this addresses. There are plenty of other passages that deal with the mode of baptism. By the way, that always is immersion, being put underneath completely and brought back up. It represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not so much what this is talking about, but this is talking about the the motives behind it. But it says that this baptism is the fulfillment of a type from the Old Testament. That baptism saves you. Not the removal of dirt. If you need a bath, take a shower at home before you come to church. Don't come and get baptized. Because that's not what baptism's about. Baptism doesn't remove dirt, nor does it remove sin. Because the purpose of baptism is not that. There are whole realms of Christianity that teach if you get baptized, that you're saved. It's the same as, and and you can look this up, they believe if you get baptized, that's born again. The Bible is absolutely clear. Being born again is an act of faith, not a ritual or a baptism or any other thing that you go through. It's an act of faith on your part toward God. On the other hand, it's very clear that baptism is for an appeal to God for a good conscience. When I got saved in 1973, I had already been sprinkled when I was 12 years old. That was a disaster because I I would go back when the Lord was convicting and say, I'm already got baptized and I'm a member of the church, so I'm okay. I literally did that. stupid, but I did it. My wife, she got baptized three times frontwards when she was, I think, nine or ten. Neither one of us were saved when we got dunked in the water or sprinkled with water. Then we both got saved in 1973. I got saved a month before she did. And immediately when I heard about baptism, I said, hey, that's what I need. Because what happened before was really meant nothing. And now I understood what baptism was. It was something that is after I got saved. And my wife struggled with that because she said, well, I did get baptized by immersion. And then friends of ours just, she was struggling with it. And she said something to friends of ours. And the lady just looked at her and said, well, Faye, were you a Christian when you got baptized? No. And immediately we both, she changed her mind and we both got baptized at the same time. But the truth of the matter is, it was a good uh, appeal for a good conscience. Here's what it comes down to. And and Bob, I am glad to use your wife as an illustration this morning, because Bob and Dottie were a part of the first baptism we ever had here at Garden Chapel. It was right down over the hill here at Craig, house, Craig and Donna's house in their pool. And I can remember somebody else's heat pump kept going on. And I had to yell over top of it. Okay. But it was very cool. It was the first baptism I ever did. It was very cool. And Bob and Dottie were a part of it. And Dottie was in the class. And I mentioned in the class, you don't get baptized. It's not an emotional thing. It's not to make you feel good or anything like that. Well, the baptism is over. We had a, some snacks or something. She walked up and she said, Paul, you're wrong. <laughs> and Dottie would do that. Okay. And she wasn't being nasty. She said. Paul, you're wrong. I feel good about this. And I said, yes, you will. Why? Because you were obedient to God and you have a good conscience. Because here's what happens. is The water represents that old life. It's washed away. And you're representing that you have trusted the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so it's okay to feel good. You don't do it to feel good. But the result is you have a good conscience. I've never forgotten that. Really neat. You don't forget those firsts in your life sometimes. But the truth of the matter is, that's what it's saying here. Look at Noah. It was removal. That's what it represents. The old life is gone. In the United States, we have a very low view of what baptism Even those that I believe practice it biblically, we have a low view. It's like it's something you go through because you got saved. In other countries, you can be a believer for years and never be persecuted. Nothing happened on the outside. It's not a public declaration. The day you get baptized, you have a target on your back because you have declared publicly that you're a Christian. You've declared publicly, the past is the past, the old life is the old life, and I'm living a new life because a result of that you now are an object of persecution and hardship and suffering point is i challenge you you go wow is that how you advertise baptism at the church the answer is no we look at it for what it actually is if you've trusted christ and you've never been baptized by immersion i challenge you go home pray about it think about it grab your bible read what it says about baptism if you have questions give me a call um uh, because it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Because guess what? It's the only act of obedience that I know of in the Bible where you simply submit to it and somebody else does it for you. You don't baptize yourself. I baptized plenty of people over the years and they just, I just tell them, hold your nose and hang on because I'm going to put you under and I will bring you back up. Okay. But you know what? You are putting your life in somebody else's hands. That's what baptism represents. I challenge you, if you've trusted Christ and you've never been baptized by immersion since that, I challenge you. Whether you're a member of Garden Chapel or not, or you normally come here, I challenge you. That is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So, what do you take from Noah's flood and Noah's ark is that God provides salvation in a time of judgment. And it is represented, when you come to the New Testament, in our baptism. Because he wants us to make that public declaration that we identify from, uh, with Christ and that we're putting the old life behind us. I challenge you in that way. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer. Father, thank you so much that you're a God that provides salvation, physical as well as spiritual. Thank you that you have spoken very clearly and that you... Make your will known that you want us to be obedient. You want us to be faithful and to live by faith. And Lord, you've also made it very clear to us that you indeed do judge sin in every way. You don't always deal with it the way you did in the time of the flood, but you absolutely have a time when you say judgment must come. Lord, thank you for reminding us of these principles today. We thank you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless. Go with God.